0: On this week's According to Sources podcast, I sit down with Brett Buckley and James Deleva of Wallachbeth Capital. We discuss the current slow state of affairs in the event in merger arbitrage world. We analyze some current situations, including Altaba Baba, the Cody Tender, and we take a stab at valuing the new Dell. I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broomstreet Capital, and this is According to Sources for the week of April 8th, 2019. It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. Some breaking news to share with you this morning. M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. Brett and James, so can you just, before we get really rolling, like just tell me about like what Wallach Beth is, how it was founded, like uh, there's a lot of people that are working here, so just give me a sense of what's going on.
1: Wallach Beth was attractive to uh, yeah. If you guys don't mind sitting sure. too close yeah. to each other, Wallach Beth <laughs> was attractive to Brett and I because there's a lot of other you know complementary type businesses. They have a But what is it like asset management? It's a no. It's a it's a it's a broker dealer uh, that's originated from the derivative side. They used to be used to be a two dollar broker at one point on the Amex floor. They moved their operation upstairs. Covered a broader you know customer base so the niche business is this portfolio finance revcon business which is conducive to, to you know some of the other event these situations that we kind of jump into the other one is a, a big etf business so they have you know a 15 16 person desk you know huge agency etf business but it's Maybe the second biggest liquidity provider on on the street in terms of you know agency uh, ETFs, right? Secondary and tertiary uh, names. Those two businesses alone kind of really lend to us fitting right right in the middle of it. Uh, there's there's another investment banking unit, smaller, right? They you know they come out with some. Uh, they actually they're bringing something today, uh, which I don't know. You know, it's a Chinese wall, uh, but right. th- there's a there's a small uh, IPO coming out today. And then um, there's the research end of it. And then, well, there's no research per se. We're, we're not a research provider. We fall under the uh, market commentary and basically it, it falls under market commentary.
0: Okay. But we so do like, how, do you, how do you get into contact with a guy
1: like Roy? Uh, he's, we, we cover him. He's, our, he's, a, he's a customer that, that we you know, either you know, hit personally on, on the telephone or IB or email. Right,
0: but he doesn't pay you with like order flow. Oh, yeah. yeah. He does. Yeah.
1: So we, we are, I mean, we're basically, uh, you know, an equity execution or option execution desk. Right. Around, obviously, these these eventy names. Okay. All right. That makes sense. And well, we also put out, you know, we, we put out option ideas around them. Uh, we wrap some of our own thoughts with option ideas that, right. that kind of limit risk and, you know, leave you with some sort of definable risk. Okay, and at your role,
0: like your
2: title here is exactly, just so I get it right? Uh, Event-Driven Strategies. Okay, and you're Brett? I'm the Event-Driven Strategist. He's, he runs sales and trading for the Event-Driven Desk.
0: When I first came across you guys through talking to uh, Roy and Michael at, at Westchester Capital, they said really great things. And when I first spoke to you, James, about doing the interview, I wanted to talk about special situations, and we sort of distinguish between soft catalyst-driven situations and hard catalyst-driven situations. And I wanted just maybe one of you guys to distinguish in your minds the difference between a soft catalyst and a hard catalyst. Sure.
2: I mean- You want to take it, Brett? Yeah, sure. A hard catalyst situation would be anything that is, uh, you know, an announced and pending definitive merger or acquisition. The spectrum of sort of, you know, heading more towards soft catalyst. It's, it's not just any one type of thing. It might be something that is, if you take a look at the sum of the parts of a situation and it looks undervalued and whether or not there might be some near-term perceived catalyst that might unlock that value, people might take a look at situations like that. There could be an maybe an activist shareholder with a significant stake in a company that's um, urging you know the board and management to maximize value for all shareholders. That could be a a soft catalyst situation. It can go uh, even more soft where there's really nothing that might you know on the on the horizon that might trigger something. But on maybe a long time hold, and if it's at a deep enough um, discount and value potentially, there might be things over the horizon, if you will. So. It's kind of a spectrum. Uh, So I guess that's how I would just more broadly characterize what is a soft, uh, not-so-soft, and then the hard catalyst spectrum.
0: Right. But you guys seem to want to, in general, and then this might be not true, but do you guys tend to try and avoid the hard catalyst situation?
2: The event-driven desk at Wallach Beth is... uh, We just finished our second year, so we're a new and growing effort in that space. We tend to have focused on the hard catalyst situations in the United States, you know, the announced and definitive transactions down to a certain size. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be expanding that over time. And it's it's more just a sort of a uh, manpower constraint because, you know, again, we're new and we're growing, so we'll, we'll add people as we go, and then we'll be able to focus on more and more things. So we kind of chose the core of our everyday business to focus on largely the definitive announced U.S. space. That has been... If you think of it as sort of – if you draw the line at about half a billion dollars in equity value, in the last year or two, there have been about 65 to 70, 58 to 72 announced pending situations in the US. Recently, that shrunk notably in the last three, four months or so, which everybody I'm sure is aware of that number is now down to like you know there's maybe 37 or 38 of those situations and that all pretty much shrunk pretty pretty quickly just with deals coming off and not enough volume of new announced transactions there's been obviously a couple uh few very large ones that seemed promising you know through you know year to date so far but just the number of deals being announced there's obviously uh, a dearth there so you know you always have to be focusing on something that's the job
0: well, right now, I mean, there's not a lot to focus on. I'm right. sure you're feeling that. I'm sure your client's feeling that. So what do you do? I mean, there's only so much you can do.
2: Well, I came from the buy side. When What we did was merger arbitrage, and that's mainly what we did. We had latitude to do other things. So we could go do convertible arbitrage. Uh, we did distress situations, high yield. Uh, we looked for these so, you know, so-called special situations. We did shareholder activism from time to time. So I've taken 13— Where were you before? It was a Stanford— Connecticut-based hedge fund um, called Dolphin Partners, okay. which we founded in the mid 1990s. You know, from time to time, you know, we had the ability to run proxy contests, you know, with 13D and you know, do other sorts of activist approaches. So, when the core of having a portfolio of passive stakes and announced pending situations becomes less attractive, smaller supply and what's left gets a little too tight. You can't just say to your investors, "Oh, well, there's nothing. There's not so much to do," you know, because then they'll, you know, they'll take the money away. <laughs> yeah, so but that doesn't com-
0: mean we want to reach and do stuff that are, that's you don't want to go.
2: No, you don't want to do things right. that are 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 silly, right? And or
0: just we're if we're reaching, right? That might be a problem. Well, so it, it's like, is there anything wrong with just sitting on your hands and doing nothing and waiting? Which is like it's been uh, that's been 2019 at least for me, just basically waiting.
2: There's nothing wrong with. You know, sitting on one hand on one's hands and waiting, I'm not recommending anybody go do something that they're not comfortable or familiar with. Uh, I'm just saying, like, when our core goal of having a portfolio of announced pending transactions was becoming unattractive looking, let's go look at other stuff that we also do know how to do, so that we're not playing in traffic doing stuff that we we're not quite familiar right. with, and you know that have different. Risk and return profiles, but if you if you're conscious of the different way that returns are realized and risks can manifest, and you're familiar with those situations, there are other things that one can go do, which is not you know where you're you're heading. You know, going off and maybe doing something, you know, uh, not smart. Right. Right. So where we've been focusing with respect to talking to our clients about just that, that sort of co- those core items you know, obviously sensing the lack of deals in the last few months, which we think is largely a product of, you know, trade tensions and what's going on with, um, with uh, you know, Europe and Brexit and a number of other things. We think that's, you know, corporate boards and management don't have a lot of certainty or visibility going forward. So they have probably become reluctant to go big, do big, large transactions until there's some visibility. Hopefully we get some trade resolutions soon and then we think going forward, there'll be some you know deals being announced again.
0: So, James, just to, to switch it up for a second, in your interactions with with clients, and you, start, you talk to funds on a daily basis. They're probably saying the same thing: starving, I am.
1: starving for ideas, starving for ideas. Yeah. So, what are people doing? Um, you know, it's 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 looking at certain situations that that may be longer dated, like uh, like a Mellanox situation where where there's where there's not um, anything in the near term. Maybe trying to come up with a shorter-term strategy with options that's limited risk. Um, you know some of the other, I mean, long-dated stuff. Uh, you know, we recently held a dinner, and you know the, the topic was, uh, you know, that, that took up the most time was Celgene, BMY, and right. you know now that it's kind of you, we've gotten past the first hump of it, there's still you know a lot more to do, you know, in this in this deal. The and
0: majority of the drama is off the table. True. Right? Yeah. And if there's no drama in this business, it's not very much fun, right? No, no. Last year, we were right in the middle of NXPI, Qualcomm, Broadcom, right? That was – there's a lot going on there. And we had Bristol Celgene now. So what are – I mean – I mean,
1: what, well, I guess what you tell people to do is what people have been doing leading up to this, you know, leading up to the, the shareholder vote, where where it was a um, – you know, people were buying put spreads in Celgene to protect their downside, and people were buying bmy calls or call spreads to protect their upside in case something came in over the top uh, something did materialize you know and then once that kind of you know once we got that out of the way those positions un- you know unwound over the next few days and now they're looking at longer dated kind of what's the next step type of you know uh... strategies right now i say this with option strategies because not everybody is a is option savvy a lot of people just stick with trading equities. And, you know, Brett and I always kind of, the one thing we, we always agreed on was that an option strategy should be part of everybody, por- portfolio. To limit your risk, to define your risk, to hedge some part of your trade, a part of the trade that needs to be or can't be hedged otherwise. And, you know, when you use them that way and you're not just buying a premium, you know, or possibly wasting time value, it, it, it works out. For most people, the, the guys who use options are probably the guys that have been around the longest. You know, okay. as, right. as you, as you can attest to, because you know, obviously, when you ran, when you ran money, you know, uh, Brett was, you know, pretty heavily involved in options as well. Right. Right.
0: So uh, I asked you to. I said, what three situations did you want to talk about the most? And uh, what's interesting is like at least these three, while they are soft catalysts, they're, for me, timing is everything, right? So these are shorter duration, softer catalyst situations. So the first one we wanted to talk about was Altaba Baba, which we got some, looks like it's finally going to unwind. And maybe you could just talk about, Brett, how you're recommending people position this, what's your view on the rest of this trade. And and also just, you know, this has been clearly a long time coming. If you look back, I don't know how long you guys have been recommending to have this on, but certain funds have had this on for multiple years now. And if you look back, it was it worth it, like was this a trade worth having on?
2: I think um, yeah, we've been uh, reasonably well steeped in the Altaba situation. Uh, we probably took the deep dive into it when we were in the last month or two of Verizon acquiring the Yahoo operations. Mm-hmm. And yes, at that time there were people that had owned it when owned Yahoo, when Carl Icahn was, you know, had a stake some years prior to that, and I think I owned it too at the time. So we had been recommending, you know, at first I looked at it because it was a deal. It wasn't quite a deal because it's Verizon owning buying operations. So how do you hedge it and everything? And so I started to look at what was left, which was the the forty Act company that would be formed. That is Altaba around the close of the Yahoo deal. And you could see that there was a demonstrable amount of potential value that could become un- unlocked. There were a lot of, there were several more uh, pieces to it at the time. They had owned Yahoo Japan. They don't own that anymore. Well, longer.
0: without getting into the the, yeah. the the nuts and bolts of the trade, which which everyone listening knows. Sure, sure. So like, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, uh, what do you do from here? This We're squeezing the lemon at this point, right? Is it worth it? What are you guys recommending to do in it?
2: So literally before we started this podcast, I was on the phone with our um, tax counsel, which is why I stepped in a little bit late. So I'm in the middle of going through uh, a lot of the ramifications there. I had felt that in in recent months uh, where um, the the spread had sort of been settling in at a a particular range, depending Mm -hmm. on how one values it, I was valuing it at sort of Altaba tended to be trading about five dollars discount to the my estimate of the fully text, uh, uh, you know, some of the remaining parts, if you will. Um, it felt a bit too tight, but not concerningly so. Uh, they announced the plan of dissolu- uh, dissolution a couple days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it became clear uh, soon after that people had been perhaps expecting some kind of a pop on just the announcement. That did not happen, and as we speak, it's actually been widening rather dramatically in the last day or two. Um, Why do you think that is? I think it's partially a lot of people who have been sort of setting up at, let's call it the so-called $5 spread in recent months, were not necessarily a a class. I'm not not speaking to all the shareholders, but the the recent entrants were more sort of maybe looking for that pop on the announcement of the news, did not get that news, and now they're selling out. Dovetailing with that is when you read through the proxy statement for the plan, it's conservatively written, and by conservatively written, there's some things in there that can seem actually scary sounding, uh, that can suggest that the value might be demonstrably less, that it can drag on for many years. And my opinion about the situation is it's not nearly as bad as how that document has been written, and this is based on Reviewing this with with our tax counsel and numerous, 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 numerous conversations with the company itself, so that it's widening now is um, a function of what I just said, and I think the opportunity for those people who can deal with that kind of risk, meaning going through a plan of dissolution, that now it's getting to levels that are um, that are attractive. Right. Uh, so you know, it's it's a it's getting to a decent value. Here. So you're having people, you're recommending people to just set the spread here. We think we think we think it's um, it's it's at a very uh, attractive value here. Right. Okay. Do you want to talk about Cody or Dell? Well, uh, let's do Cody. Yeah, that's fine. Cody's a stock that was six or seven dollars before this was announced. Yes, they reported earnings a day or two before the jab offer was made, which ran the stock to about nine dollars or a nine handle. I don't think that that's the unaffected price, nine handle. I think that there was a lot in that quarter that were sort of one-off items, positive but one-off items. Right. One thing I would point to there is since that quarter was announced, the the estimates for the company have not, you know, the the forward sell side estimates have not been they even changed a, a bit. So the sell side is not putting. You know, there's still no at least a wait and see. So I would have felt that the unaffected price would ultimately have drifted more into an eight handle. Um, the offer's eleven dollars and sixty five cents. Jab presently owns forty percent, they'll take themselves to sixty percent. There's some people who are thinking that Jab wants to buy the entire company. I do think that they are doing a creeping takeover, but that remaining forty percent that's outstanding. If if they're ever interested, and that's one, two, three years down the right, road or so, at all. right? If at all ever, so if if that's why we're leaning towards, if there isn't a lot of spread in tendering into eleven sixty five, based on where Cody is, and after the costs of these conversions to set yourself up, then it might be more interesting to play it uh to the short side you know that it ultimately will drop back towards those levels i was i think they might uh after the tender expires on the 15th of april so
0: you think this finds a home around 850 to 9 something like that yeah
2: Yeah. you know how these things go though you know there's a lot of noise post tender and nothing ever goes where you want it to um structurally and what do you
0: think the pro rate on something like this will be
2: I'm well, we got a little peak a little bit when they had to extend uh, recently. It, w- it was to March 29th. They had found out late they needed Russia and approval, so they filed. That's a statutory 30 day right. thing. And so April 15th is it. They extended to the 15th. They gave us uh, a confusing set of numbers um, as to how many people had tendered but it was lower than I would have thought it to be because there, it was confusing language as to how many guaranteed deliveries were. So you don't know whether you're supposed to add up two numbers or whatever. But, right. but it, it was in the zone of maybe 60 something percent of the, of the non jab shareholders had uh, tendered as my sort of the way I read that, uh, the, the, the announcement, which if I think it's an eight handle stock, and jabs may you know not necessarily coming back or if they do a long time from now then why wouldn't every single you know jab shareholder tender in 1165 for a piece of their shares so I was a little surprised that the the participation was lower and the right. pro was higher yeah. um, so if those numbers are prologue to the final tender a perfect rate of everybody tendered is 33% mm-hmm. so you might get something more like a, you know a you know, fifty percent pro rate. But having said that, there's so little spread from here right. to eleven sixty five minus your conversions. Might as well just play it to the short side anyway. Right. So that's right. that's where I'm sorry, James which, is going.
0: Which is which sounds great, except you know, suddenly I've gotten three notes from three different banks in the last week saying to do the exact same thing. You know, and that's what starts to scare me about the whole thing. It's yeah. like because there's so few opportunities out there. The ones that see, it seems to be like a pylon effect because everyone gets these same notes. They talk to the same people. And then suddenly everyone's short Cody going into this event. Right.
2: And then, and then trying, to, and then trying to cover. Exactly. And you know, you get the, Of course, this is what I was alluding to. You will always have that noise post, post the uh, expiry. Uh, right. You know, but with some staying power, you know, you will. I think you're going to do fine because I do not envision the stock's going to be running away to $13 a share.
0: Right. But you know, as much as I, like the people in this event biz, uh, they want to be out at the event. You know, the event happens, they want to cover. They don't want to cover over the next three weeks. Right. So, yeah, you're right. It could be could be noisy. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked you the third situation. You said you wanted to talk about Dell. And I guess my question is, why do you want to talk about Dell at this
2: point? I think that there comes a point that no matter how despondent you might feel about ever getting a Fair value for a um, for a, a Dell ownership interest uh, that sometimes it gets so cheap that even uh, if you never realize a fair value, if let's say there's some transaction some years forward or whatever, that it's at such a low level that whatever value is offered, you still tend to fare well. And so the the situation with Dell is. They're committed to paying down Dell's core net debt, which we've we've had one uh, public filing since they've been D E L L public Dell. Right. They they did do that a little over a billion dollars in net debt. Core Dell net debt declined a little over a billion dollars. Um, at the same, and, they're, and I've spoken with the company. They're committed to continuing to pay down that debt, even though they can buy shares if they want to. They would rather pay down the debt, which I encourage them to do. At the same time. The, uh, you know, everybody has their different peer group, but the peer group that I've been using has expanded by over a uh, multiple points. What peer group do you use? uh, HPE, HPQ, uh, Lenovo, Acer, Fujitsu, a couple others. Okay. So that group was 5 to 5.3 times the uh, estimated 2019. It's hard to
0: be fair and call those the peers, though. I
2: know it is, but there's only so many, you know, Companies They're that you very can unique fund. at yeah. this point in what they are. Well, that, that's what I'm using. That's yeah, uh, yeah. and honestly, swapping notes with 30 or 40 uh, clients, it's, it seems to. It's uh, we're in the zone of what okay. people might you know think of as a peer group. But I, I, I absolutely agree with your point that each of these businesses are rather different. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, almost any peer that you might have chosen has, a pre, has experienced multiple, significant multiple expansions since the. Uh, the close of the DVMT transaction, which brought Dell public. Um, This particular peer group was 5.3, as I said, is now six and a half times. At some point, and then especially as as net debt is declining, at some point you have to uh, start assigning some multiple to the uh, core Dell operations that has to start, you know, Making Dell look even cheaper rather than just as a discount to its public holdings. So, if you assign no value to the core net debt, as we speak, Dell's trading t- uh, was 30% discount to its mm-hmm. public holdings. It's a little tighter, it's maybe 27, 28% last day or two. You would have to, if 6.5 is the multiple and the net debt is what it is and a declining number, you would have to cut. The 6.5 multiple also by 30 percent to get to a multiple that assigns zero value at all to the cordell operations or to the equity value that would represent the cordell operations your interest in it and i'm just saying at some point something is so you know significantly undervalued that it's worth taking a stab at it and i'm just i'm just saying i think we have to be getting close to to that zone right yeah there are some people that say um, there's there's no discount that I'm interested in because I just don't know what's going to happen with it, and I can appreciate that. Um, and there are some people that uh, have felt that maybe uh, DELL should be trading more at like sort of, um, you know, Malone entity discounts, um, which are, you know, top of my head, range between 10 and 20% or something like that. Well, I
0: was going to ask you, like, so- something like a Liberty Sirius, you know, that's something that everyone's been looking at that for the last five years, years yeah these things can stay discounted for so long a long time
2: yeah and they tend to get typically range bound by people that move in and out of it right and they they and i'm just saying we're at these levels we're not only at the bottom end of a range we might be through what should be a normal trading range right i absolutely agree you you never know what you're going to get with the dell entities so i'm just saying sometimes it gets so cheap that it's worth a stab. It's worth it. yeah. Okay. So
0: I end every interview with uh, five questions for each of you. I'm going to ask you guys the, the same question. I guess since there's two of you, we'll kind of keep them both on the briefer side. So the first one I wanted to ask you is, uh, I'm, I'll be going to the 13D Monitor Active Passive Investor Summit, which is next week. They do it every year. And you have all the sort of historically heavy hitters and uh, Keith Meister and Ackman. They'll all be there. What We haven't seen like a plethora of large 13D filings. Outside of maybe Elliot, in the past year, it seems like activism is, in, in a way, on the decline. What uh, I'll start with you, James. So, what is your overall view? Would you say of of the world of activism right now?
1: I wouldn't say it's in decline. Um, I mean, we're seeing some, you know, companies being put up for sale, exploring their their, their strategic options, you know, through Ooh. some. Uh, I mean, more recently uh, Citrix was was mentioned yesterday. I mean, you know, um, that stocks
0: had a, f- a for sale sign on it for the last. But five Elliott's years. also
1: been in, in, into it for a while. Um, you know, these other situations, these 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 uh, Zio situations. Um, I'm trying to think of the uh, Nielsen, right, is 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 uh, being pushed for sale. And if you look, the common denominator in
0: really all of those is Elliott. Right, they're in all yeah, of those, yeah. and they seem to be the only one that's doing anything right now. And I just wonder why.
1: I mean, Starboard recently, obviously, in the Celgene, uh, you know, kind of. That's almost that's weird. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. call that <laughs> so a well, activism. Let's say. Yeah, we, we definitely thought it was a little weird. But, yeah, um, you know, uh, I'm not I'm I'm not sure that that it's not really happening. It's also it also happens behind the scenes too, you know, yeah. the, the non-public part of it. So I mean, Brett, Brett could probably speak more to that. You know, sure.
2: I think that when you have, um, as we've had uh, in in recent years, a a stock market that is passively pushed ever higher in a low volatility environment and to ever higher multiples, that value of the catalyst uh, is not a theme that's uh, in vogue. And so investors don't – they're not necessarily attracted to invest in in situations like that. And for the managers – when everything's 13 times EBITDA instead of 9 or 8 times EBITDA, it's tough to find something that, that you can show up and rattle the cage and go, look what we're going to do because this is s- 6 times EBITDA and it should be 8.5 and, and, and nobody really cares because every, you know multiples are higher. So right. when we had a year, 2018, where um, we went sideways largely because of trade global trade tensions, and we had some volatility back, and we had, um, just off the top of my head, like, sort of an s and PE multiple that went from maybe 22 down to sort of 16, 17. That created a, fer- a potential fertile environment for activism, you know, for all these activists mm-hmm. to find situations to go take their 13 Ds on and rattle the cage and extract, maximize value for, for people. And in a market that doesn't go up all the time anymore, at least through 2018, that was starting to look attractive. So I thought, through that year and then going forward here that it was only a matter of time that activism would, would um, come back more in vogue for all those reasons. Um, since the last month or two or so, we're back sort of at, at the highs, we're in higher multiples, so that's probably put a little bit of pause in what, you know, where, where you were going where there's not maybe as much activism as you, you would have liked. I don't
0: even know if it's something that I. I mean, it certainly keeps things interesting, right? Sure. But I just wonder. I mean, like the we're at the point where we're breaking up United Technologies and, and Dow. It's like we're going up the Nestle in a way.
2: Yeah. Is
0: there much left?
2: Now, it's getting it's getting kind of picked apart. True. I mean, we I follow a few smaller situations uh, that I think will uh, provide some interesting value that are you know, where there are activists in, in there, but they're they're smaller, they're not, you know, very large situations. I do agree with you that the Bristol Myers thing was a little bit
0: weird. That was, I always thought the Bristol Myers was them, A, wanting to be in the headlines and B, just like it was a free look, right? They bought it at 45, 46 and w- there wasn't huge downside because people like the combination anyway. So they probably were like, we like the combination, maybe we get the bid, maybe we don't, either way, low risk and we get in the paper.
2: So, yeah, I was I was talking to ISS right before the maybe two weeks before the vote, on, and they were asking me about it. I, I mean, when I was an activist right. years ago, they I've presented before ISS. You know, you know, when you're a proxy in hand, you're running directors, you need to go to ISS and Class Lewis and all those people. So I had called them on another matter on something that I had done some years back, and the first thing that they were, um, you know, wanted to talk about was this whole Bristol Myers thing. And right. I, I can't remember what was it maybe two, three weeks before the vote or something? Right. Yeah. Or before, I, excuse me, before ISS came out. From day one that the Celgene deal was announced, we didn't believe there was a buyer for Bristol. And so we recognize the size of the patent cliff that Revlimid represents. We had, where, where we couldn't get comfort with the Starboard proposition was it seemed that they were asking asking us to disprove a negative that may or may not occur several years from now. And seemed also to in in their 200-page pitch book or whatever they had filed mm-hmm. didn't you know, just really it wasn't very highlighted the other side of that coin that at the end of the day Bristol-Myers of course is taking on more risk but they're also not paying some gargantuan price and until then they are actually collecting some pretty significant cash flows from the from Celgene until until that time so you know it just they didn't seem to highlight that enough. And so I, I just couldn't. I just felt that br- the Bristol management uh, proposition was was better, and you know, for whatever it was worth, shared it with ISS. But and,
0: and and Wellington, which ultimately threw the biggest wrench into it, you mm-hmm. know, what were their motivations?
2: I don't. You know, yeah, I mean, they probably they, the same thing. Get in the papers. And. ISS said to me, we we found it interesting that Wellington, who typically doesn't say much out loud, uh, was being vocal like that. And I said, yeah, I also find it interesting that in they're being vocal, that they're selling many millions of shares on, on the way out. So it's like, that doesn't, right. what right. is that telling us?
0: Okay, second question, I'll, James, I'll start with you. Um, you guys speak to funds all day, but if you could only invest with one of the funds, who would it be,
2: oh,
1: and man, why? That's, that's a tough question. You know, I would, I, would uh, I, I like to stick with the guys that have been around the longest. Mm-hmm. So I'm not gonna mention any names, uh, but I think the, there's there's probably a handful, maybe not even a handful. There's probably four accounts out there that have been around for well, over ten years, and 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 uh, my money would definitely go to at least you know two out of the four. Okay. Well, uh, any reason
0: you don't want to say anyone's name?
1: Yeah, I just I mean it's it's I, I you know it's just not something I really want to. I don't want to start you know advertising for other people and you know. Still have to cover everybody, you know. Okay. Then, you know. And,
0: well, I'll, I'll, Brett, I'll, I'll phrase it this way. Uh, whose strategy, from what you've talked to, do you particularly respect? Without saying, I prefer one fund over all the rest.
2: Whose strategy, or um, whose brain do you like to pick more than someone else's, or? In the world of activism, mm-hmm. I've been impressed by Engaged Capital, okay. which were the, uh, the the guys that were in there that uh, drove the Renaissance situation. Yep. Um, and then, as you know, the 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 Vintage Capital deal collapsed, and they're working out the break fee, which I, I don't think Rent-A-Center will get. But irrespective, um, Engaged went back in, increased their stake. Um, if management's new pro- set of projections are to be believed post the vintage deal collapse, then a redo of any kind of deal, you know, the former numbers with the new set of numbers is a deal in the mid to high 20s. Mm. Uh, and so Engaged, I think, had owned uh, a significant stake, Or, you know, I, oh, I'm going to get the numbers wrong off the top of my head, but I think... Hit like almost a double in a twenty-month period, and that's that's pretty good as far as. But
0: I mean, don't you think they were they were pushing for the combination?
2: Yeah, and then it blew.
0: And it, then the business happened to get great in the midst of it all.
2: And then they sold a piece before the thing blew up, and bought that stake back. They're back up to nine nine. They're in there. They board representation, and I think they're. I, I'm just impressed with what they had done with that situation. Right. And, and there's a couple other things that I know that they're in there smaller. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Not not necessarily worth bringing it up, but I just I was I was impressed by that. Okay, uh, if that helps answer that question. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: Okay, so uh, James, I'll bring this one back to you. There there are other research shops that do what you guys do. Sure. So uh, in a few
1: sentences, how would you say one gains an edge in this business? I believe, you know, I, I, I've, I've been doing this for well over 25 years, uh, mostly on the derivative side and equity, uh, you know, equity coverage of hedge funds. Uh, we've had traditional merger arb desks that I've worked in the last two places that, you know, have dedicated analysts to, you know, to certain event-driven situations and everything like that. Um, what I like about I guess, uh, changing things up or differentiating ourselves mm-hmm. um, is the fact that Brett has never been on the sell side. So um, that was something that really uh, you know, kind of lured me in immediately. Uh, and, and just the way he, he's got a very diverse, strong background and the fact that we don't pigeonhole ourselves in just the merger arb stuff and can kind of you know, deviate into other or transition into other situations. Uh, I think other desks don't do uh, as well, or at all, in some cases. Uh, you know, obviously, so, so, you know, our, our our main competitors have a large, you know, diverse background and probably have, you know, twelve people working for them. <laughs> you know, right now it's just me and Brett, but I mean, you know, a lot of people can't transition into some of these other, you know, more specialized situations. Right. Uh, so that's 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 what I like uh, about what we've done so far, and I think there's you know, and and our competitors, there's there's a handful of competitors out there that are very good. I mean, you know, um, I don't really want to name them, but I, I think I think they're you know, I think yeah. there's 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 some good talent out there. Yeah, I agree. Brad, what do you think differentiates
0: what you guys are doing from, or how do how do you gain an edge in the business?
2: My career was buy side. I was a principal in a hedge fund for most of it. And I did not know uh, Mm -hmm. if I had the tone or tenor to be a strategist talking, you know, on the sell side talking to um, clients that were basically me, you know. I found that it's been very well received. I think it's an asset that I've done what they do, so I know what they're trying to figure out. I don't have any problems talking about why this is, not necessarily a good situation versus maybe always trying to speak well of a situation. We try to be opportunistic in terms of where we chime in on something. Mm-hmm. We're you know we're smaller, so we can't cover everything. We have limited assets at this time. But you know, having come from the buy side and getting you know, I, I know what a, you know the hundred emails in my inbox every morning reciting the terms of a press release to me is is also not necessarily. Uh, adding value, and right. in it's in, in ways it's come, it just cannibalizes, commoditizes. So we, if we don't have something to say, we we don't say it, and we just try and stay out of your way unless we think we have something interesting that might be somehow helpful. And so we think that's how we can add value in a way that is I, I would I would like to believe is unique versus uh, peer competitors. And how do how do I gain that edge? I don't know. I mean, I utilize a lot of assets that I had utilized when I was on the buy side that help us help inform our, our uh, opinions when we do chime in.
0: Okay. Uh, last two questions, uh, more on the personal side. So, I'll, uh, James,
1: I'll start with you. If you weren't doing this line of work, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh boy, that's a uh, that's a good one. Uh, you know, Wall Street is a uh, is is a unique place where you know you get a lot of people that would probably be doing something way off, you know, than, than sitting behind a desk and, and being, you know, in front of a computer. I don't know. I guess maybe real estate developer, Okay. Uh, you know, outdoors, you know.
2: You want to own a restaurant.
1: I do want to own a restaurant, but that uh, <laughs> I think I'd have to be a real estate developer first. You'd have and, to make your money yeah. in real estate, then exactly. waste in Exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That's a
0: good exactly. idea. <laughs> exactly. What about
1: you, Brett?
2: I'm glad James gets all these questions first. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't know. I, this isn't a job to me. It's I'm fascinated by you know tinkering with you know modeling you know math modeling and all you know all these uh, you know, doing LBO models and talking to the company. So it's it's to me it's a hobby. So this is it's fun time every day for me. So I, I haven't ever given it really any any thought. Um, you know, if if I were in a situation where I would have a you know, home office or something like that. Probably some form of philanthropic work. But I would always like to have, you know, uh, some money allocated to in-house managers doing this sort of stuff, so I right. could like wander around and see what you know, get a vicarious thrill as to what you know, what they're up to. Um,
0: and last question, I'll start with you, Brett. Oh. Uh, if you could have dinner with anyone living or dead, who would it be and why?
2: Oh, um, um, a fellow by the name of Edward Netter, who's uh, passed away. Um, he is, um, I've known him for many, many years. He was the father of the person who founded Dolphin Partners, and he's brilliant, and he's thoughtful, and he's, a, he's kind of a mini Warren Buffett. Okay. You know, he literally, his holding company um, uh, owns insurance companies and all sorts of other operating companies, so it's a, it's a mini Berkshire Hathaway, if you will. Uh, and I've always uh, respected his thoughts uh, and his wisdoms, and he's somebody who's shoulders I stood on when I was coming up and learning everything from, you know, how to, you know, do a leveraged buyout on a company to learning merger arbitrage and so on. Uh, it would just be really great to have a dinner with him again. Mm. James? I'm going to make Brett cringe,
1: but uh, I would choose Donald J. Trump. Okay. Uh, just for the sheer, uh, you, know, do you, you know.
0: You don't want to split a stake with him, though. I heard it's... Medium yeah, medium well, I'm right? Catch ketchup,
1: I'm, medium well. I'm okay with that part of it. Uh, I, I would probably just want to. I would like to hear the. I'd like to be there live for the circus, mm. and and really get some insight in terms of how much of this is is for show, and how much of it is real. Okay, are um, you coming
0: from a pro Trump or an anti
1: Trump? Uh, I am. I am not. I mean. I'm definitely fascinated by him i am I am not a pro trump uh, but I, I i guess I guess I used him as the best selection available
0: okay and uh I guess if you could only ask him one thing what would you what would you ask
1: I would like to know how much of his tweets are actually preconceived like are they are they are they off the cuff or are they there's somebody sitting there. They sound open.
0: like they're off the cuff.
1: They sound like they're off the cuff. I, I, don't, I don't buy that, though. I mean, I think there's some. Many... I hope
0: he's not premeditating these. I, I, somebody, they're I, not I, that I, smart sounding. <laughs>
1: I guess. <laughs> um,
0: all right, guys. Thanks again. That was great. Sure. Thank, well, thank you. Good to meet you guys. Yeah, same here. My thanks again to James DeLeva and Brett Buckley of Wallach Beth Capital. I'll be back next week. You can hear my interview with Greg Ramiliotis of Reuters News to discuss the current state of financial journalism in 2019. Again, I'm Mike Samuels of Broom Street Capital, and I will see you next week.